Hey podcast listeners, Sean Alexander here, co-host of the show and Extension Forester for Northeastern Washington. The Forest Overstory needs your help. In order for us to continue bringing you episodes, we need to hear from you, our audience. We'd love it if you could head over to the WSU Forestry website and take a short survey on your impressions of how we've been doing so far and let us know what you'd like to hear from us in the future. You can find the survey on our website at forestry.wsu.edu and clicking on the Forest Overstory logo or by typing forestry.wsu.edu forward slash forest overstory. Thank you. So there are a lot of surprising pros because, you know, trees are dying all the time with, without any participation by insects or fungi or pathogens. Um, they're dying from abiotic causes, you know, wind throw, fires, weather, heat, frost, you name it. Um, and then they're also dying from competition, right? Younger trees are getting shaded out in the understory and, and they just can't survive. And so the, the insects and fungi and things that we think of as pests can often be beneficial because they're recycling that dying material um, or killing it off before it, you know, a dying tree is still using water and nutrients. And so it's, even though it's a dying tree, it's still a competitor to the healthier ones next to it. And so in come these bark beetles and root diseases and things, and they're kind of picking off these weaker trees. And, and so they're, they're beneficial. Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WSU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. Thank you everyone for coming out today. We are joined by two of the Washington State Department of Natural Resource entomologists. We are joined by Melissa Fisher, who is the Northeastern Washington Region Entomologist, and Glenn Kohler, who is the Western Region. I don't know how, what your full region title is. Uh, I'm generally statewide, so just state forest entomologist. Perfect. And do you guys want to go ahead and give us a little bit of uh, your guys' backgrounds? Melissa, we can go ahead and start with you. Uh, I got my bachelor's and master's in forestry at Northern Arizona University um, with a focus on forest health and forest entomology. And I got my PhD at Virginia Tech um, in forest entomology. And after I graduated, I worked in Texas for about a year and a half as a coordinator for the uh, forest co-op there. And then I came here to Washington, and I've been here since 2014. And Glenn? I got my bachelor's at University of Montana in, in general biology and started out my professional career as an eighth grade science teacher. Oh. Um, and then my wife wanted to move to go to grad school, so I... I made an abrupt career change to a tomato breeding lab, um, which kind of like got me interested in entomology. We had a project on aphid resistant tomatoes and uh, I did a paper on that and I thought, hey, I can do grad school. Um, <laughs> so I went to Oregon State University and project in uh, with hemlock woolly adelgid, uh, which is an invasive problem on the East Coast. Um, that was available, and I was anxious to get out of the hot tomato fields and into a shady forest. So, um, 
got my master's and was lucky enough to get the job uh, in Olympia with DNR. At 2008 is when I started. Cool. Melissa, what was your uh, PhD project on? It was also hemlock woolly adelgid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. We were we were bringing predators in um, from here in the Pacific Northwest and also from Japan. And what I was really looking at was hybridization amongst those different predators. Um, and they were capable of hybridizing, at least the one that we released from here in the Pacific Northwest, Laracobius nigrinus, was able to hybridize with the native back east, Laracobius rubidus. So it's an interesting project. So I guess let's let's rift on that a little bit, because you said this is an invasive species, right? Yes. And it's primarily found in the eastern portion of the U.S., or was this something that came internationally? Um, well, I think that Nathan Havel had found that the adelgid that was introduced into the eastern part of the United States, I think it was around 1953, was introduced from Japan. Um, so there is a population of hemlock woolly adelgid here in the Pacific Northwest, and it's not native, but it's been here for, for thousands of years. And I believe that one might have been introduced from China. I think that might be its closest relation, but I, I don't remember off the top of my head. So technically the one here is invasive, but it's been here long enough where it's not really causing issues with our hemlock. So it's become endemic over that amount of time. Basically. I would call it endemic at this point, yes. Yeah, that's a good description. And it, it's been here long enough that the native predators around here have had time to adapt to, to feeding on it. Uh, whereas on the East Coast, th there's a lot of the same types of predators over there that we have in the Northwest, um, but they just don't know what to do with a hemlock woolly adelgid. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I'd spent some time in kind of the Appalachians, Tennessee area, and i gone... You know, I went there when I was in like my early 20s and then I went in my mid 20s. And I, even in that short span, I could see all the damage from the the adelgid. And that was right before there, that big fire in Gatlinburg a few years back. And I imagine a lot of that dead wood contributed to that. But the, the scale of destruction there is pretty massive. So I guess we're pretty fortunate here. Yeah, within the short time that I was there doing this project, I had a site in North Carolina, and I think I went there three times to take measurements, and between the first time and the last time I was there, every last one of the hemlocks had died. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, if, if it's been here for a thousand years, how do you guys know that it was an invasive species in the first place? I think that's all genetic, um, genetic work, looking at where those genes originally came from. Um, they can break it down to like certain areas in Japan and China and you know, throughout the world. Yeah, Nathan Havel that Melissa mentioned is doing that genetic work. And I, I don't understand how it all works, but uh, you can actually estimate when a new population branched off. And he actually thought it was more like 10 or 12,000 years and could have possibly come over the Bering Strait. Um, when that oh. was more like a land bridge. Uh, I, I don't know how you prove that with some genetic lab work, but 
<laughs> that was kind of the theory that they could have just slowly moved over here from Russia, essentially. Mm. And what are some of these natural predators that you talked about? What are feeding on these um, insects? So Melissa mentioned the Laracobius, which is like a, a little fungus feeding beetle. Fa um, the family of those beetles, very few species in that family, but it's one of the only, that genus, uh, Laracobius, actually doesn't feed on fungi like its relatives. It feeds on uh, adelgids, mostly the eggs uh, inside the little adelgid uh, ovisac. It's like a little cotton ball of wax that they make and lay eggs in there. Um, there's also some lady beetles, you know, kind of like the standard ladybugs you might think of, but they're much tinier and they're more specifically adapted to feeding on adelgids. And there's also a, a silver fly, a couple species of that. Uh, Chamomiidae is the name of that family or Leucopus is the genus name of those. Um, what else, Melissa? Um, the interesting thing I think is that there are no parasitoids of adelgids. Um, so oftentimes when we're looking for a biological control, we look for a parasitoid and there, there aren't any parasitoids. So what do you mean for our listeners? What do you mean by a parasitoid? It's basically a, a wasp, a species of wasp. And um, parasitoids, sometimes they'll lay eggs inside the eggs of other insects, or they'll lay eggs inside the larvae of other insects and basically eat them from the inside out kill them so Ooh, that's grotesque <laughs> yeah. yeah that's where a lot of the alien movies probably came from <laughs> i was just gonna say it sounds like a ridley scott yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so it, it is i mean she's right it's so bizarre because there are parasitoids of things like caterpillars or fly larvae that can literally like jump away when a wasp tries to lay an egg on them um but these adelgids they're fixed in place they're they have a long feeding tube like a drinking straw and they feed on plant sap and they're just sitting there. Hmm. And how in the world you don't have something that's adapted to attacking that is beyond me. Yeah, I think it's really strange. <clears throat> and these adelgids, so are they moths? I'm not entirely sure what an adelgid is or what it looks like. No, it, it's, a, it's a species of hemiptera, so it's kind of in the family of, of where you would find things like true bugs, things with a uh, proboscis, um, and they feed on sap. So hmm. like Glenn was saying, they, they'll stick that, that stylet through um, into the stem and feed on sap. Sap suckers, well, kind of like scales and aphids. And, sure. Yeah. And, and they're very small, right? And when, but they kind of, am I, I'm, I'm trying to remember correctly, but they, they end up with kind of a fuzzy appearance as they aggregate on the, on the hemlock. So they just kind of look like cotton tufts, just stick it onto the leaves. Yeah. Tiny little cotton tufts. And they're on like a, the underside. So you would turn the branch over to look underneath. And see them. Now I think yeah, if I it's remember... really bad. It almost looks like they've been snowed on. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I think I remember reading once that they have two or a couple life stages, life forms. And one of those, forms or stages requires them to actually land on spruce was that is that correct so they actually require two different tree species uh to be to reach their maturity stage yeah uh hemlock oleodelgid spruce i believe and back east they're asexual they reproduce completely asexually wow 
Yeah, so all of the adelgids, there, you know, there's one in the northwest that's a serious invasive that causes a lot of damage called balsam woolly adelgid. That's a problem in the subalpin fur in the alpine areas, like in the Cascades. Um, all of them only feed on conifers, and they all have a spruce host to have their sexual reproduction on. Um, but neither of those, the balsam woolly adelgid or the hemlock woolly adelgid, has a spruce host in in North mm. America. So they just, like Melissa said, they just reproduce asexually forever. It's very strange. And they, and they don't have any winged forms to fly because um, they don't need to go find a spruce. Oh, weird. Theoretically, wouldn't that over time kind of weaken them genetically? <laughs> you would think so. so. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many of them. Maybe, you know, like maybe just like mutations within that code. Interesting. Keep them going. I don't know. Yeah, that is interesting because it kind of limits management. Like I know um, with some other things that have alternate hosts in their life cycle, like Western or the white pine blister rust, which has to, its alternate host is ribes, right? So like currants and stuff like that. And there was a period of time where they were managing just by getting rid of all the ribes. I don't know if that actually worked. But in this scenario, you don't really have that choice. So I'm curious then, I kind of like broaden the conversation out to invasives. Where where do you guys, where are we seeing some of the major outbreaks and kind of how, what, what patterns have you guys seen over the last 10 years, uh, especially in, in relation to a lot of these drought years that we've been seeing? What do you think are some of the major pressing issues in Washington state? I think in Washington state, invasives, in my opinion, are are less of an issue compared with something like climate change. I think back east, invasives are a huge problem. And they right now, anyway, they might be on par with climate change. But here, I do, I do think it's climate change that seems to be um, causing a lot of forest health issues. Can I ask your opinion on, on why that is? That's something that's confused me ever since I, I moved here from back east where you know, I saw like emerald ash borer and damage and, you know, uh, beach bark disease, things that just wipe out whole species. Um, why, why is the Pacific Northwest seemingly so insulated from this kind of damage? Well, part, part of it's luck. Um, <laughs> you know, things just, this area hasn't been settled as long and things uh, for many years weren't being brought out here as often right um but now that's changed obviously right we got ports everywhere and people moving back and forth all the time but the other thing is that we have a a good monitoring uh and eradication program for some of these things like gypsy moth is a really good example of where it's basically endemic on the east coast but washington department of agriculture puts out, you know, thousands of traps every year for gypsy moth. And then when they find a population, um, they do projects to eradicate it before it gets a foothold. But they're pretty much doing that every year, these eradication projects. So it's a battle. Um, and something like you mentioned Emerald Ash Borer, uh, I, I hate to say it, but it seems like that's almost inevitable that it's going to end up out here. I, I don't know what we're going to do to prevent that. I mean, we ask people not to move firewood and things like that. Um, hopefully people pay attention. Right. But once it gets established, it's extremely difficult to 
to slow the spread. But I mean, I know and this is not an Emerald Ashbor example, but um, a couple years ago, there was a scare, speaking of hemlock, around the elongate scale, the hemlock elongate scale uh, down in Oregon. But it seems like kind of true to what you're saying. They just really rose to action and swarmed the problem. And then I never heard anything about it since. It just really, it, it seems like they were firing all cylinders, were able to take care of that pretty quickly. So that monitoring system uh, seems to be pretty effective. Yeah, and that that incident, I think, also was about luck because they didn't, <laughs> they weren't here when they were in the crawler stage. So I think if they had been in the crawler stage, that something could have come of that. Something would have yeah. been more likely to have come of it, but yeah, they were they were in their sedentary stage, so they weren't moving. They weren't capable of moving. Yeah, and so there's some other success stories. Like there's been some Asian longhorn beetle introductions, like in warehouses on solid wood pallets and things like that. Hmm. Um, citrus longhorn beetle came in on like a bonsai tree, and in those cases, you had aware citizens who were reporting an unusual insect. Um, and so the public outreach is really important on this too. And it, it always blows my mind. Like we obviously aren't reaching everyone with those pictures of, you know, these evil beetles, but we seem to be reaching enough people that they do get reported, um, by the public, which is great. So I think on that topic, I, I, my listeners would be mad if I didn't bring up the the giant Asian hornets that we're seeing. Uh, <laughs> and, and now I know that they're not specifically feeding on trees, but they utilize trees as nesting sites, correct? They nest in the, the bowls of rotted out stems. They do. Mm-hmm. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? And, you know, if you see any, what are, what are your predictions? I, I think it's... I. I don't want to speak in too much detail about it because it's another one of those Department of Agriculture uh, where they it's a new uh, invader and it hasn't established, hopefully has not established, and they're trying really hard uh, to keep it out by destroying the nests and uh, monitoring with traps. And so it's a huge effort. And I don't want to speak out of turn for what they know, um, but I was I was encouraged to put it in our annual forest health highlights report uh this for 2020 and at first i was like oh this you know this doesn't have anything to do with forest health it's you know a predator of beehives and um you know maybe dangerous to people obviously or scary um but somebody pointed out to me that you know the forest is an ecosystem and you got this horrible invasive predator that could kill all kinds of native pollinators and um you know so that made sense to me. To there's lots of reasons to keep it out, besides humans and bees, <laughs> right? Yeah, and just because they don't cause direct damage to trees, right? That that's your first instinct. But I I like that that stance. So you know we've been talking a little bit about invasives, but you just said earlier that you don't. Or Glenn, you said earlier that you don't think that invasives are really a huge problem, at least for the Western states. Um, I guess then I would turn our the, the focus of the conversation towards native insects. I think a lot of people, when we discuss this term forest health, and we think about you know um, pests and pathogens coming into these forests and killing off these trees, um, there's this innate bias that this is a bad thing. Inherently, this is bad. 
And I think there is a lot of uh, a lot of conversation around this. There's a lot of nuance. So, you know, and the question is posed to both of you, but I'll start with Glenn because I kind of pointed you out. Can you discuss the pros and the cons of having native insects in our forests? So there are a lot of surprising pros because, you know, trees are dying all the time with, without any participation by insects or fungi or pathogens. Um, they're dying from abiotic causes, you know, wind throw, fires, weather, heat, frost, you name it. Um, and then they're also dying from competition, right? Younger trees are getting shaded out in the understory and, and they just can't survive. And so the, the insects and fungi and things that we think of as pests can often be beneficial because they're recycling that dying material um, or killing it off before it, you know, a dying tree is still using water and nutrients. And so it's, even though it's a dying tree, it's still a competitor to the healthier ones next to it. And so in come these bark beetles and root diseases and things, and they're kind of picking off these weaker trees. And, and so they're, they're beneficial. Um, but with the natives, uh, when you have these big, it's usually some kind of big disturbance, like a drought or wildfire, for example, or a windstorm that creates a lot of dead material, uh, they breed in that stuff. And then you get these huge population explosions and outbreaks that can come out of those events um, or something like a drought can weaken the trees. And then the insects and, and diseases can get past the tree defenses more easily. And, um, and maybe we don't necessarily call it an outbreak uh, at that point. It's more like a response <laughs> to a, a tree weakening event. Um, so, but sometimes these get really bad, like mountain pine beetle is a great example of something in the last, you know, a decade ago was getting tons of news and, you know, killing whole forests of lodgepole pine. Um, and so, it, you know, you see it from the highway, it looks horrible, um, devastation. And so that a native insect is doing that uh, can be really surprising to a lot of people. And the reason for that is because of consistent disturbance like what you're saying with consistent hot dry summers uh, or maybe not cold enough winters you know it's it can be the hot dry you know weakening the trees drought effects but some something like mountain pine beetle is a good example of of an outbreak that it kind of occurred just because trees are getting old and there's mm -hmm. too much competition like the stand is way too dense and so those older lodgepole aren't growing thriftily and they're not healthy. And then the beetles just munch on them like crazy. Gotcha. Um, and it, it can happen independent of fire or drought or any of that. Um, the cold winters thing, you know, in order to kill bark beetles over a winter, it has to get down to like negative 40 Fahrenheit. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So that's not really a thing in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, get we have all other problems. Yeah, <laughs> if it was negative forty. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa, do you want to expand on that and give me your two cents? Um, as far as individual trees dying due to natives, I mean, think about how much will inhabit that tree after it dies. Like how many different insects, uh, different wildlife species. You know, it's a lot of bird habitat. Um, and snags on people's properties and such. So, yeah, when you have when you have trees dying individually, um, 
it's normal and I don't think that's necessarily a pest problem and I think it provides habitat for a lot of species. But yeah, when you get these large scale events, um, it's a little different. And honestly, I do think that in the case of something like mountain pine beetle, that that will happen as long as you have stands that are getting to an age where those trees are, you know, like 80 plus and about eight inches in diameter plus. And those lodgepole pine stands will get attacked um, if they don't burn first. So I, I think that a lot of it has to do with people's management goals. Um, and, and really like, what are they looking at? Are they looking at a piece of property with like an acre, five acres, or is it a landscape level issue? Cause you know, you'll have landowners who'll look at, you know, five dead trees in their property as devastation. Whereas, you know, you look at five dead trees on a landscape level and it's not that big of a deal. So, um, I really think it depends uh, on how you're looking at it. In that situation, say where take the lodgepole pine example, uh, you know I have landowners in Montana area who have swaths of lodgepole out there. Um, when they're when they're faced with that, you know, uh, conundrum of either it's going to burn or it's going to die from bark beetles, but naturally it's going to be dense. I mean, what would you in your mind? Where would you take that management scenario to you know try to limit the outcome of either of those two? I think lodgepole is a hard species to thin because um, it kind of grows up all together, you know, and then you start getting these trees that are noodly. And when you try to thin them out, they tend to break in the wind. Um, but when I think of managing lodgepole to keep it from getting into that area where it's going to start to get completely decimated by mountain pine beetle, I, I think of like making a mosaic of cuts where, and it, it really depends on how much property you own, right? Like if you had 100 acres, you could take five of those acres every couple of years and, and basically clear it out and let the lodgepole grow back in so you have different age classes within that um, area. And that way, if mountain pine beetle were to come through, your entire stand doesn't get hit at once, just portions of it will. So, but that's for something that's, you know, just pure lodgepole pine, basically. I mean, if you have mixed conifer with lodgepole pine, your stand, which is what I have, I don't mind seeing some of it die off <laughs> to bark beetles. Um, but again, I guess it depends on your management goals. Are there specific sizes that these beetles tend to attack? I mean, is it why is it lodgepole and why mountain pine beetle? Um, just bark beetles in general, or yeah, it. It's hard when you have this conversation because you start to realize that all of the different insects all have different, you know, um, behaviors and, and, and tendencies that they like. So, let, yeah, let's let's try to say bark beetles in general. Yeah, I mean, uh, they just have different niches. I There's like a, a famous, well, I would, I mean, maybe it's famous for forest entomologists. There's a, <laughs> <laughs> there's a famous uh, uh, picture. It's, it's basically a ponderosa pine in the partition parts of the tree where the bark beetles are attacking. And this is more for like the Southwest. And it just shows where where in the tree the, the bark beetle can be found, you know, what areas. And that that is just basically niche partitioning. And that's why bark beetles attack different sizes, uh, different portions of the tree, so that they all are capable of, uh, producing a brood, you know, if everybody was attacking the same size tree or the same species, then there would be a lot of competition amongst bark beetles. So, you know, I, like here in eastern Washington, I often see western pine beetle and pine engraver 
in the same ponderosa pine trees. And pine engraver tends to be at the top where the diameter is smaller and western pine beetle at the base where it's larger. So that's, that's basically all it is, it's niche partitioning. If I can ask another kind of broad question, because, you know, there's a pretty big difference depending on where you are in Washington on how beetles behave. Uh, can, you, can you speak at all um, to that behavior, uh, east or west of the Cascades? Uh, obviously, I mean, most people affiliate bark beetle damage with the interior mountains uh, or in, intermontane region. Um, but there's definitely bark beetle activity west of the Cascades as well. And not everybody knows that or, or what, what kind of damage is uh, possible on the west side. Yeah, there, for some of the, the bark beetles, that Cascade mountain range is a real hard divide. Um, Melissa mentioned the western pine beetle that attacks Ponderosa. Um, that doesn't occur in western Washington. And we do have populations of Ponderosa pine in western Washington, but they right. just, uh, it might be the environmental conditions aren't right for them. Um, something like Douglas fir beetle, that's a specialist on Douglas fir, which of course occurs throughout the state on both sides of the Cascades is everywhere, Douglas fir beetle, but it behaves very differently. Um, in, in Eastern Washington, where it's more droughty and the trees are under more competition stress um, because a lot, in, in a lot of ways, because of fire suppression uh, and lack of stand management, that's a whole other podcast probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the Doug fir beetle, when we have outbreaks, they, they often start when you have a big pulse of dead trees all at once. So in Eastern Washington, that's often a fire and windstorm sometimes. Uh, but those outbreaks can start and sustain for like five years uh, or more. Whereas on the in Western Washington, where it's more moist and the trees are under less drought stress, well, historically under less drought stress, maybe not so much today. Um, <laughs> in Western Washington, a big windstorm can create a, a big Douglas fir beetle outbreak. Uh, a good example is 2009 and 10. We had big outbreaks of Douglas fir beetle following a couple of, of really bad, you know, hurricane force storms on the coast. Um, but those outbreaks end pretty abruptly after like a year or two because the bark beetles, they run out of weak trees to attack because uh, there's so many healthy trees out here that it just peters out because a lot of them die trying. Right. And that's why we always, I mean, my whole mantra, as you've taught me, Glenn, uh, in <laughs> classes is that they're, they're secondary agents largely, and they're going to be at, and, and that's really important to kind of draw back on what you were talking about earlier, which is that they're, they're thinning agents in that regard, and they can actually improve forest health by, taking some of those weak trees out a little early and redistributing those resources back to the healthy trees. Uh, obviously, you know, it's changing a little bit, as you mentioned, with hotter, drier summers, that's having an influence. But, you know, it is a different dynamic on the west side, for sure. I, I think probably a little bit more fortunate dynamic yeah. uh, for landowners over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah, things do change. And, and sometimes, you know, if you have a big enough beetle population, um, it can very quickly go from that sort of, oh, these are beneficial, you know, part of the <laughs> ecosystem to, oh, my God. Okay. You know? yeah. um, and especially like Melissa mentioned, if you only own five acres and you've got a Doug fir, fir beetle patch and you've got 40 dead trees on your five acres, that's an event. Yeah. Um, 
And another example of a weird one is that mountain pine beetle um, actually does occur in Western Washington. And, and most people don't think about that, uh, but it's over here and it, it can kill white pines and, and um, the shore pines. Um, and it just doesn't really take off because the, the trees are too, too happy essentially. Um, so mostly it's like you said, a secondary. So I'm, I'm curious then, you know, you, you said that these beetles are actively thinning out the, the suppressed and weak trees. And you said, you know, kind of this the management or lack of management is one of the factors that are leading towards this. I'll give the classic question of, well, why not just let mother nature take care of it? You devil's advocate, you. That's, that's the great thing about you, podcasts. You, you, you notice that both me and Melissa are silent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm going to edit this silence out, too. So you're going to quick response. I think we should keep it. It's gold. So I, I can, uh, I'll use a pathology example. So we're the entomologists, but we also have a couple of forest pathologists that work for DNR. Define pathology for me real quick. So, you know, with humans, it's like study of disease, right? Well, it's the same for trees. Um, they've focused mostly on fungi, um, things like root diseases, foliar diseases, like Swiss needle cast, um, you know, some invasive diseases like white pine blister rust that you mentioned earlier. Anyway, uh, a good example of the, you know, nature take its course is root disease. Um, because it's, you know, unlike these insects we're talking about that kind of come and go, um, the root disease is chronic. It's in the soil. And if you have it on your property, you're, you're probably you're going to have it forever. Um, and there are lots of different ways to, depending on the root disease, to manage it. But in some cases, it's so difficult to do those management activities that one of our management options for people in the list is is literally do nothing, right? Just let this thing go in a corner of your property. It moves very slowly through the soil, root to root. Um, and you're going to have, like Melissa mentioned earlier, a lot of wildlife uh, really enjoying this root disease <laughs> area, right? This creating new dead trees every year. Um, yeah, yeah, it's that's a tough one to like advise a landowner, like let nature take its course, because um, you know that's not really an option for some people. And some people will will let nature take it. I've actually had people in classes ask if they could just let it go. And, and yeah, they certainly can. And especially the more land you own, the more forest you have, hmm. the more you're going to be willing to do something like that. But the less land you own, the less trees you have, the more unwilling people are to just let it go. I also think it depends on where you are in the cycle. I've definitely told landowners to wait and see which of their trees are going to die the following spring before trying to do any sort of management because especially in the case of something like pine engraver it, it might be at the tops of their trees and they don't know where they are so if they started thinning over the winter and taking trees out they might end up leaving residual trees that actually have pine engraver still in them and then it just becomes an even greater problem so yeah sometimes i'll tell people just to to let nature take its course but I think it really depends on the, again, the management goals and, and what people want. And I, I wanted to point out, you know, a downside to letting nature take its course that you're, you're not just making decisions that affect your own property, right? You have neighbors 
And, and we get a lot of people who will point out, you know, my neighbor is not doing anything and I'm trying really hard. Um, and, you know, the Beatles are moving from their property to mine, which is not always how it works, um, but certainly a wildfire, uh, which a lot, you know, is much more devastating than, than the insects we're talking about. Um, if you have property that's completely unmanaged and there's a lot of dead material in there, it's the wildfire is going to carry through there really fast. Um, and so a lot of communities are developing these uh, community wildfire protection plans and things like that, shaded fuel breaks, um, where property owners are getting together, you know, state property, forest service property, getting together um, to make a more of a landscape scale um, reduction of fire risk. But it costs a lot of money and thankfully DNR provides cost share funding if people want to participate in that. Well, yeah. And that's one thing kind of back to the root rot example. It is, well, it's, I'm glad Melissa, you mentioned management objectives because that's really ultimately and scale, as you mentioned, Glenn, those two things are really going to be in that scenario. What helps a landowner decide if they're going to actually manage root rot? Cause I always warn people, you, you know, you might be harvesting trees in a root rot, but you're not going to make any money. That's going to be an investment. Um, you know, and, and unless they go big, right. They can go, they can do that and incorporate into a larger harvest. But, um, you know, it really is that scenario of if, if you've got one or two acres and your root rot's working through it pretty fast, then you might want to get on that. But, you know, or on the other end, you've got a lot of acreage, but you're managing it for every cubic foot of timber possible. Then your root rot is also a problem and you're losing money. Um, but I really feel for in most scenarios, uh, most of the landowners are in that kind of let it go uh, margin. That, that's been my experience, at least, where they're they would be fine under, you know, once they start to understand the wildlife benefits and um, of like an open patch and things like that. But it's also really good advice. He said to, to keep your neighbors in consideration. I like that. <laughs> well, it's it's, you know, less of an issue in Western Washington. Um, yeah, I mean, right. Again, I'd say for now um, that you can get away with a lot more of that, you know, let nature take its course in Western Washington, uh, Eastern Washington. It's much riskier. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, Melissa and I were talking about root rot here. Have you've been noticing a lot more expansion of the root rot into species that we typically saw as resistant species? Right. Do we have we seen that in any insect species as well? Um, we've seen some, some interesting activity. I think one of them would be, um, secondary bark beetles, specifically, uh, in Douglas fir. After our drought in 2015, we started seeing, uh, several species attacking and killing Douglas fir, which is not something that we've really historically dealt with. Um, typically, you know, secondary bark beetles are bark beetles that are coming in second after something else has killed or is killing the tree. And so maybe the argument could be made that drought was killing the trees. But I, I have to say, I'd never really seen anything like that before. I thought, um, and it wasn't only killing just small diameter uh, Douglas fir, it was also killing the large mature trees, basically like a branch at a time, because these are pretty tiny beetles. Um, so yeah, we, we've been seeing some, some interesting things happen. Uh, 
regarding insects and recent droughts that historically hasn't really been an issue. Another one would be um, a species of moth, and there isn't a whole lot of information about it just yet, but it's, it's a Cydia species moth, and it appears that it's um, actively killing larch, 30-year-old um, or less, small diameter larch. Um, but this hasn't been completely confirmed, and the exact species that we're dealing with has not confirmed yet either, but we've been seeing this in Idaho and in eastern Washington. And does the moth, it's it's a defoliator? No, it's, it's actually um, feeding underneath the bark of the tree, uh, similar to what you would see as a in bark beetle activity. Wow. And it kicks out frass like a bark beetle would, but it's like a big and chunky, you know, moth, moth <laughs> frass um, excrement. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of, the activity is very similar to what you would see in a bark beetle. Another way to describe that is a range expansion, right? So all of these insects have a historic range. So what states they occur in, what counties you have, you name it, you can make a map. Um, in, in Oregon, like in the Willamette Valley, uh, there was this California five-spined Ips, which is a pine engraver, and it was getting in the Willamette Valley Ponderosa, um, and people were planting more of that stuff, and so they were starting to see more problems with this little bark beetle, uh, but it never occurred in Washington, and it never occurred out in the Columbia Gorge. Well, again, right about this time when we started having more drought issues, um, it, it showed up in the gorge and started killing like tons of mature big, big ponderosa pines. Uh, and it was really shocking. And there were a lot of private landowners involved. And, and then we started trapping for it using a lure specific to that species. And we kind of found it all over uh, the southern part of Washington. And so as far as our records go, it looked like it moved north. Um, it's possible it may have always been here, uh, but we didn't notice because it wasn't killing trees. Right. And so you have this drought event and then it sort of tips off an outbreak. Um, and so, you know, kind of the same as the examples Melissa was using, you, you have something that's either somewhere else and not our problem, or it's something that was here and it wasn't causing a problem. And then all of a sudden, you know, the conditions have changed and it's now a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess like, I, I want to ask the question that every landowner has in their head as they're listening to this, because I feel like with forest health, Sometimes this conversation can be a bit doom and gloom. Um, there's, a, there's a million insects out there. They're all trying to kill the trees. You know, we're heating up, we're drying out. It's not looking good, but there has to be a practical answer here. I mean, there has to be something. I mean, we talked about managing thinning forests. Uh, the buzzword that everyone loves to throw around right now is resiliency. That these forests need to remain resilient to the, the insects coming. Can you guys give me your definition? Maybe each of you give me a definition on a, like a west side focus and then an east side focus of what is resiliency and, you know, as a landowner, what actions or steps should I take uh, to, to try to promote that? Uh, I guess I'll start with the, the western Washington perspective and resiliency is um, basically the ability of a tree to defend itself 
So it's being attacked by something and it has the ability to keep it out altogether. So either you've got, you know, a bark layer and sap under pressure that pushes the beetles that are drilling in under the bark that pushes them out. Uh, the sap flushes fungi off the roots before they get growing deep into the roots. Um, or if the tree is attacked and the insect or fungi is successful, then resiliency is how is that tree able to recover from damage? Um, so a defense and recovery, essentially. And it's really tied to how many resources that tree has. So when a tree is growing, it's obviously using water, light, and nutrients to grow. And, and those resources are allocated to different parts of the tree, right? You've got leaf growth and diameter growth and height growth, um, you know, putting on new bark, putting on new roots. Well, I've, I've never seen the science behind this, so I'm just going on faith that someone researched this carefully. Um, but essentially a tree only allocates resources to defense mechanisms last, right? It's doing all of these other things first. And, and the defense mechanisms tend to be associated with diameter growth. Um, and so if a tree has enough resources to grow in diameter, uh, it's theoretically also be, being resilient enough or vigorous enough to also defend itself. Uh, and so that's why we see these, you know, Melissa said the noodle, noodling trees or the suppressed trees that are thin, small diameter. Those are the ones that are really undefended, right? Um, and so how do you make your forest more resilient in Western Washington? It's, it's not that difficult because we have a lot of water over here. Uh, it's more about giving them room to grow for light. Uh, it's so, but I'll, I'll turn it over to Melissa for the <laughs> East of the Cascades perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is such a hard question to answer. I feel like there's a whole lot involved. Um, resiliency, I, I agree that it's defense and its ability to recover after an event, uh, a tree. Um, resiliency could also be uh, biodiversity. You know, um, the more species you have in your stand, the less likely you are to end up with no stand after any sort of event, unless, of course, it's a fire. Um, so maybe that that's in a way, that's a way that you could make your stands resilient by having more species because the western pine beetle is not going to come in and kill all of your ponderosa pine if if you have more species in there. But yeah, defense tree defense. The theory is that the larger the diameter, the more likely it is that the tree is going to start allocating resources to those defense mechanisms, so pitch or toxic chemicals, things like that. I, I did do a study for my master's where we looked at ponderosa pine and attacks by a, a species of bark beetle called the round-headed pine beetle. And in this um, project, we were looking at trees that were statistically similar to one another. So they were paired. There would be a tree that was attacked right next to a tree that wasn't attacked. And I think um, one of the things, one of the big things that came out with that we did, we did notice that the trees that died were, were growing much slower. So that was the biggest thing. But also it did appear that trees are allocating resources to different things. So we had trees that were attacked, tended to have longer branches. 
So that would suggest that maybe those trees were allocating to growth rather than defense. So I, I think there's a genetic component to that too. And perhaps that's something that somebody is looking at right now. Um, you know, you want trees to allocate resources towards defense. So it's possible that in the future, maybe we could um, have progenies of tree species that are allocating more towards defense than to things like growth, and that might help. Um, but otherwise, I mean, our big mantra is thinning, thinning so that the stands can um, allow the trees separation uh, via crowns and roots, and they're able to obtain more water. If a fire comes through, it's not going to be carried through the crowns. I mean, it's that's what we have to work with right now. But I, I think there's a lot more to it than just thinning, uh, especially in the case of something like root disease, where thinning can actually make that problem worse, depending on what you have in your stand. Yeah, I'm going to jump in and add, you know, thank you, Melissa, for taking it away from just individual tree resilience to stand level uh, resilience. And in addition to the thinning, uh, there's also some insects like Western spruce budworm um, and a pathogenic plant called, you know, dwarf mistletoe, a parasitic plant, that they really thrive in certain stand um, structure. So it's not just about how many trees per acre, it's more about how many layers of trees in the canopy, what's the host composition. Uh, the budworm likes Douglas fir and grand fir in Eastern Washington. And so if you have a lot of those two species in your stand and multi-layered uh, canopy, then those caterpillars uh, can more easily drop down in the lower canopy and still feed and survive. Uh, and so, yeah, stand level resilience is is big and it's complicated sometimes. Yeah, actually, now that you've said that, Glenn, I mean, resistance and resilience really has to do with what you have. Like, whatever stand type you're working with, the resistance and resilience of that stand type might be different than another stand type, even here in Eastern Washington. So I, it depends on what you're working with, really. I don't think you can just give everything the same treatment and call it resistant. <laughs> Which is why every forester's favorite phrase is, it depends. Right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. 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 I thought about getting a tattoo of that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah when melissa was prepping me for this she said uh oh they'll probably ask you know what's the most important uh forest health issue in washington and my joke answer was whatever's on my property <laughs> i always tell people that if you ask uh 20 foresters how to do something you'll get 21 different answers <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and it i mean it's a good point though because i'm Landowners now, you know, as, as Sean said, it can be a little doom and gloom, but we're kind of there to provide some optimism, some management options, um, you know, information from the DNR and the university. And, but they got to be able to stick and move and, uh, you know, go with the punches because every year seems to be a little different. You know, last summer, the heat dome that no one saw that coming. And, it was pretty wild. I mean, I, we're, we're still, I know, learning a lot about how that's going to affect trees long term. But I know that the DNR, uh, you two specifically, are doing uh, an immense amount of work. That's why I kind of wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about the Forest Health Survey 
uh, that you do and how landowners can utilize that information for the future. So, I, I mean, I don't know which one you might want to tell us a little more about it, but um, I'm sure landowners would like to know what's going on there. Well, I, I could talk about the aerial survey and maybe Melissa can talk about, uh, it, she flies in our aerial survey also, right. uh, which is awesome. Thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, she can cover her area in Northeast Washington and she's so familiar with what's going on on the ground. And um, But maybe she could talk about some of the ground monitoring projects that we do. Um, right. So the aerial survey is... Uh, kind of a nationwide effort. Some states do it more than others. Uh, there's a national standard for how we do it. And in Washington and Oregon, it's been going on since 1947. Um, and interestingly, 2020 was the first year in all that time we never flew uh, because of COVID. Um, there were concerns with all crew getting together from different areas of the region in a plane together all day. Um, but we, Essentially, we fly every forested acre of Washington uh, every year during the summer when the uh, damage is most obvious. And there are two observers looking out either side of the plane about two miles. Um, and you're flying at 100 miles an hour, so you're not super accurate with everything. <laughs> um, I like to think of it as painting the picture. Um, and so we're trying to give you a landscape scale view. Uh, it's very inexpensive uh, and it doesn't take a lot of time. So we can survey the whole state in like 100 to 120 hours of flight time. Mm. Uh, if you were to do that with something like remote sensing uh, and you had people going through all of that, yeah, Melissa's laughing because we had to do that in 2020. Uh, <laughs> we're looking at aerial photos and looking for dead trees on aerial. It takes forever. Okay, but in a plane, you're whizzing along. Um, we don't always get the right damage agent, you know, especially when there's a lot of complicated things going on on the ground, like drought, for example. Um, but you mentioned how landowners would use it. It's, it's really nice to have. The data comes out every year. There are PDF maps that you can download, uh, look at your property, see what we're seeing around the area. You can look back historically uh, into older maps and see you know, what's been a problem in the past, because a lot of these insect and disease outbreaks kind of come and go, right? And so you may be a new property owner and really have no idea that 20 years ago, uh, Douglas fir tussock moth or something ha had a horrible outbreak on your property. You don't, you don't know about that. Uh, but if you looked back, you could, you could learn a little bit more about the history there and that it might happen again. Um, and yeah, I'm sure I'm missing some pieces of that, but it's it's an annual survey. It's available to the public. Uh, people who are into data uh, and GIS software can download our data and use it. Um, we publish an annual report called the Forest Health Highlights Report that covers a lot of uh, the results of that survey, the recent trends um, through the state, and that's on our on DNR website. Just search for Forest Health Highlights. Um, and there's in that report, there's links and web to all the different websites where you can find this data and maps. Those maps are actually, I mean, I can only speak for myself because I love maps and, and I'm just kind of a nerd about that stuff, but they're really, you could kill a lot of time on them. And I think it'd be really interesting as a landowner to know that, you know, 
five miles down the road, there's a duck for beetle outbreak. That could be beneficial. Um, so I mean, I definitely encourage landowners to to look into that, and I suspect we'll get the next forest health highlights uh, in the next six months. I shouldn't speak for you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, the the one for 2020 it always comes out the year after the survey, right? So right now we're working on the 2021 report that covers that calendar year. Right. Uh, usually it comes out in March, April timeframe. Well. Last year, we were way delayed because we did that remote sensing piece. Sure. Uh, took so long. So we're working on it now. Uh, stay tuned. And so, Melissa, what have you seen on the ground? Usually, Glenn and I, and also uh, Dan and Rachel, who are the pathologists, are working on one research project or another. And a lot of it is monitoring. Um, some of the monitoring we do is... Uh, Douglas Bertussic moth trapping, and also Western spruce budworm. And in that case, we're also trapping the malls. And basically, we're looking to see every year whether or not we're getting an increase in the number of moth captures. And if we are, that might um, indicate that we're going to have an outbreak of those two species. And all the information for the most part that, that we collect in monitoring or any of our research projects are usually in forest health highlights when they're completed. So information about Western spruce bud, budworm and uh, about Douglas Bertussic moth and our trapping efforts are going to be in the forest health highlights when it's released. Um, we've also trapped um, bark beetles. Like Glenn had mentioned earlier, we were looking at uh, populations of Ips paracapusis throughout Washington. We looked at uh, populations of Ips perturbatus a few years ago, which is the spruce engraver, and we did in fact find it in Washington. And historically, there were no, there's no evidence that it had existed prior in Washington. But again, when you have a, a species that's native to the continent, it's hard to say whether or not it wasn't here previously. I mean, I think over time we've done a lot of trapping, not just Glenn and I, but but Washington State. And I feel that if those insects had been here, I, I feel like we would have trapped them, but I could be wrong. You know, they're small. Um, last year and, and the year previous, we were also working on a project um, monitoring western red cedar decline. And that involved um, Oregon State as well and the Forest Service. And we did have cooperators outside of that who also collected data. And basically, we were just mapping where we were seeing decline of western red cedar. And that basically includes symptoms such as thinning crowns, branch dieback, mortality, things like that. Um, and we're wrapping that project up right now as well. And it, we were hoping to find maybe some sort of implication as to why we we're seeing that decline. But I, I don't know that we're going to have that information And by the end of this project. I think that we can deduce that it's not an insect or a disease as of this time. It does appear to be abiotic, but I don't think we can say exactly what the cause is through this project. I think there's going to have to be a lot of research done in order to determine what's happening there. But that information should be in Forest Health Highlights probably next year. 
So without getting into the Forest Health Highlights report, I'm just curious, anecdotally, you know, the, the U.S. Drought Monitoring or Monitoring Drought Network, or I'm messing up their name there. Drought, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Drought Monitor. They, they said that this last year, the spring and summer drought was the worst on record since they began recording. Yep. I mean, that's huge. If you guys have been telling us that water and precipitation are the primary drivers of forest uh, or individual tree um, resiliency, what have you guys seen, at, at least it, coming into the fall and you know through the winter uh, from effects of that? Anecdotally, again, obviously. The, the effects of, of drought, um, I mean, you can get immediate effects, right? Like that heat dome is a good example of, it was so hot that, the needles couldn't keep up with the water loss from the heat. And, um, but a lot of the uh, other things that we see where tree, the whole tree is dying. So that heat dome didn't really kill anything yet. Um, that there's a delay. So maybe next year, the tree has been so stressed from the drought, it can't grow as well and defend itself as well as it normally would. Uh, and then sometimes if, if bark beetles are involved, for example, they're targeting these drought stressed trees, um, you can have a conifer that dies from a bark beetle attack, say this coming summer, uh, as a result of, of the drought from last year, that tree may not turn red or orange, uh, showing that it's obviously dead until 2023. Um, because a dead tree can still draw water uh, through the roots kind of passively and, um, and stay green. And so, not, and the other thing with delayed effects is you get a cumulative stress. Um, and I'm, I'm not a plant physiologist, but I, I do know that uh, <laughs> if a tree is experiencing drought for one year, you know, it may be able to recover from that. Uh, if it experiences drought for five years, that may be that may be it. You can't take it anymore. Um, that's the really technical explanation. But there are cumulative effects, and I keep telling people, "Oh, hey, you know, it's it's bad now, um, but hopefully we'll pull out of this drought cycle and and we'll go into a more wet period or cool period." And it doesn't seem to be happening. Do you think right. that this? Uh current winter seasonal precipitation which seems to be above average right now could help offset that on a on that yearly lag not necessarily out that five-year lag it would be much more helpful if it were coming down as snow <laughs> <laughs> so it's raining today in Colville, and it's january what 20th <laughs> um yeah i mean it, winter precipitation definitely can help with drought conditions. And I, I think the last time I looked at the drought monitor, we were coming out of it a bit, but man, the snowpack is really important during winter. Um, it's a slow release of water through the spring and early summer. And, you know, we had a lot of snow earlier in the season, but if this is how the rest of the winter goes and we're going to have mainly rainfall and these warmer temperatures and that snowpack is diminished, when we roll into spring and early summer, I think that could be a problem. Hmm. Yeah, our trees are um, adapted to a summer drought. Uh, if, if you look at the drought monitor historical, you, you can download a chart that shows, you know, essentially the monthly 
percentage of Washington area that's under drought. And you can see this pattern where every summer there's a drought. Uh, and that's just normal. But the question then becomes, what's the spring and fall? What's the snowpack like around that droughty summer? And how hot is it? So there's another term being thrown around called hot drought. And so drought is just a lack of water, right? Um, but when you add the heat on top of that, you know, I mentioned the, the needles not being able to hold water during the, the extreme heat. And in Western Washington anyway, we've had some extraordinary record temperatures, not just the heat dome year last year, but uh, years prior to that, the number of days over 90 Fahrenheit uh, during the summer has been unprecedented. Um, and so adding that heat on top of a lack of water can, can really stress the trees. Hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I, I'm going to butcher this when I say it, but uh, I was listening to a, a climatologist talking and he was explaining that Seattle in August is actually one of the driest places uh, in, the, in North America because they have this persistent, I think it's a high pressure system. This is where I'm not a meteorologist or climatologist, but they have a persistent uh, high pressure system that will sit right over the Seattle Puget Sound area every late summer, uh, which makes it just extremely dry during that period. So it's, it's interesting to see if like that phenomena and then whether or not the trees can continue to adapt through that or if, you know, like you said, we're going to continue to get these persistent years uh, and it will just eventually stress them out uh, beyond a certain point. Yeah, and I really like the emphasis you made on the heat, because I think that's something that not everybody, uh, you know, fully understands that, you know, yeah, it's pretty normal, even in, you know, in Western Washington to not get rain between, you know, mid-June and mid-September. Like, that's, that's not unusual. Um, but the heat is just, it's wild. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm relatively new here. I think most people know that. I've, I've only lived in Washington for four years. Um it's a lot hotter than I expected in the summer. I came here for cool temperatures. And, yeah. <laughs> and last last year was pretty brutal too in the heat dome. So um but yeah, I mean then that and it's just very obvious that that's having an impact. So I guess I, I for our last kind of discussion um topic here, uh, our last uh, interviewee that we had on the show was Dr. Dave Peterson, who is an ecologist at University of Washington and we discussed a uh, really the topic of, of climate change and climate resiliency and forest resiliency through that lens. And, you know, the, the common thing that people are trying to have a dialogue around or are, are having a dialogue around right now is um, species migration and whether or not that should be an assisted uh, pattern or, or whether or not humans should be kind of moving these species up and down. And so Dave's, uh, Dave's, philosophy was that it should be explored, but it should be explored carefully. Uh, and that maybe not, not just kind of throw a bunch of trees out on the landscape. Uh, we still need to do some research. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was as we move these species into new zones, not just the species, the tree species itself succeeding, but either it bringing up an invasive or a, a forest health issue that we have here, then attacking that tree. Do you guys want to kind of expand on that? Give us your thoughts around species migration, maybe some examples that you've seen in this. 
Yeah, I mean, I I do think it should be explored, and I agree that it shouldn't be done on a, a huge landscape level at this point. I mean, species here in eastern Washington, they exist um, all the way down in Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, Ponderosa pine and Douglas fir are, are two of those species. And then a similar um, fir species, uh, white fir, the actual white fir Aves cone color, where we have Aves grandis uh, grand fir. So theoretically, maybe you could take some of those, um, those genotypes from down in Arizona or New Mexico and bring them up here, and they would be more drought hardy, right? Because they get far less rainfall down there. But you have to keep in mind things like when does Arizona and New Mexico get a lot of its rainfall? During monsoon season, and that usually starts around July 4th. And so those trees, those genotypes, they're um, adapted to receiving rainfall at exactly the time that our trees are not, <laughs> and when we don't get it. So it's really hard to say how they would do. I mean, maybe if there was some sort of breeding program where we were able to, to breed trees that were adapted to our rainfall patterns that had some other um, adaptations down there, that would be helpful, like thicker needles maybe or waxier needles. Um, subalpine fir also grows down there, but the variety down there is called a cork bark fir, and the, the bark is actually a bit thicker, and that's probably one of the reasons why, is because it's more adapted to those conditions down there. Um, and yeah, another thing about trees that you have to think about when you're moving them is the chemical compositions, and you can have something like um, ponderosa pine, which is found all over the, the Western United States. And when you look at the resin composition in different areas, different geographic regions, it's different. And bark beetles are attracted to different chemicals. So if you have something that has a lot of alpapinine coming in from down there that you're bringing up here, maybe you're gonna start seeing bark beetles attacking it up here where it didn't down there, or more often or, or something, yeah. There's so many different things you have to think about when you're moving trees around. It's not quite as straightforward as as it would seem. Yeah, the, the law of un unintended consequences applies um, the, the further away you're moving them from. And one of the ways people are exploring this is by doing, um, I think they're called like common garden studies or something like that, where you take a whole bunch of different genotypes of trees and uh, plant them in, a, in an off-site area in some of the trees that that do grow there. You use them as a control population. And then you just see, like, how are they growing? Is there some fungus that is going to attack these, you know, Arizona-type trees immediately because it's too wet here or something? Um, or like Melissa said, the seasonality of the rain is different. So there's that. But I, I tell people, you know, before you go uh, start shopping at Home Depot in Phoenix for your trees um, or getting, you know, sequoia trees, which are super drought tolerant and don't have a lot of insect and disease issues, people like planting sequoias. Before you do that, think about what native trees grow in my region that are more drought tolerant than, than what I have. So if my dug fir and, and hemlock and cedar 
are, are going out because they they need more water, then maybe I should think about going toward more pine uh, or other more drought tolerant trees that already exist in your area. Yeah, I know in the past, Melissa's brought up a good, I'm going to argue for you, Melissa, here, uh, <laughs> a, a, a good counter argument to that, though, and maybe it applies a little bit more to inland northwest and not so much as the coastal west, but when we start to shift these towards more drought tolerant species, we end up pretty much turning our forests into monocultures, these kind of single species areas, or even in some cases, like we were talking about earlier, how our malaria is spreading into ponderosa pine, we kind of reach the bottom limit of, of trees that can go into that area. And I, and I don't really know what the solution is when you're there, other than potentially going and finding a different tree species. If that is your goal is to manage for, you know, some sort of tree on the landscape um, and bringing that in and planting it. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of landowners down south, you know, in Spokane and in Southern Stevens County where their entire, entire property is made up of ponderosa pine. And it's one thing if you have bark beetles, but it's another thing if you have root disease killing off your trees. And, and this has been happening a lot recently where I'll go down and our malaria is straight out killing the trees on their property and they want to know what else they can plant and I don't have an answer because in those hot dry sandy soils sandy rocky soils it's ponderosa pine and it's really all we have to put um, native as well as as far as a native species goes in in that sort of climate so yeah what do you do then um I jokingly say junipers, but I mean, <laughs> you know, maybe. Um. Well, if you if you want to see what it's going to be like, as you know, assuming the drought and climate issues continue, all you have to do is drive across the the Cascades in Oregon would be a great example, where you know less and less water as you go downhill, and before you know it, you're in juniper. And then you're in prickly pear and sagebrush. And there are some places right now that, you know, the edge effect, essentially, you've got Douglas fir growing in Eastern Washington on the edge of a sagebrush patch. Those Doug fir are the most susceptible to dying out in the next 50 years. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but at some point that particular spot may never be a forest again. Yeah. I, I remember, reading something about um, some of the fires that happened in Oregon that have burned off, you know, most of the vegetation and they're on that edge. And they said exactly that, that it's very possible that trees won't recover in those regions and that we may just see a full transition. Okay. So here, here's, the, here's the silver lining. So all of these Douglas fir dying on the edge, there are these little draws, right? Like on the, especially on the North side of hills or mountains and you get a little draw where there used to be runoff water and, and at some point in the past, those were really wet and those little fragile Douglas fir took hold there uh, and on their own, no one planted them there. They managed to survive. And there's, there's Western red cedar growing in Northeast Washington, you know, uh, there's hemlock there. And to me, that's always a mind blowing thing. Like why is there, I think of hemlock and cedar as being these wet loving, you know, why are they in Ponderay County, you know? Um, and so, the silver lining is maybe uh, if things change, uh, not, not just human effects, but the climate itself can shift, uh, we might, I can hope, <laughs> get some rain. 
and so less heat. All right. Well, thank you very much, Glenn and Melissa, for coming out and taking the time today to discuss forest health, insects, and all of the above. It was uh, quite the the roller coaster ride of a conversation, but uh, I I think that we you know we walked away with a few things that landowners can take moving forward uh, and hopefully apply on their land. Uh, and and I, I'm pretty sure if landowners have questions, they are able to reach out to either of you. So you can uh, just go to the DNR uh, website, or you can Google. Washington DNR Forest Health, and, and we have a, a page devoted to forest health, and there'll be an email and phone number on there. Uh, you can also search for Washington Forest Stewardship. Um, DNR has stewardship foresters and contact uh, them as well. And that's where you can find some of that forest health highlights information and some of those maps that we talked about earlier, too. Correct. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And to all of our listeners, have a nice day.